Yeah, yeah. yeah. happy to start whenever. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you all for being here. It's so good to see you all. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we're here on the Wadamangal land of the Dalai Nation, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. So thank you all for joining us today for our week 13 lecture, presented by our very extra special guest lecturer here today. We're going to be talking about commercial suits and practice when the rubber hits the road. So, as we all know in commercial law, uh, for those of you who don't know me, of course, my name is Dr. Madeline Taylor, and I'm the coordinator of commercial law here at Macquarie University. And commercial law was redesigned very recently when I joined Macquarie University to embed pragmatic policy and theoretical insights in commercial law combined as one. And I truly believe that the commercial law area is so important, not only for legal education purposes, of course, theoretically, but pragmatically. And so as we've gone through this semester together, we've looked at policy insights ranging from climate change to the housing crisis and construction law, all the way through to importantly embedding indigenous perspectives. And I thought, what better way to end our semester together with our week 13 lecture by hearing from a commercial law leader who's really committed to embedding practical insights for emerging lawyers. So, uh, what better way to do that? And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce James DePiche a very good friend and colleague. So James was admitted as a solicitor in 2008. He joined Chamberlain Law Firm in 2020. And civil litigation really forms the backbone of James's practice. However, these days, James finds himself increasingly providing advice on his client's conduct outside of court. And he's active for a myriad of commercial entities, including private clients, trustees, statutory corporations, unincorporated associations, and the like. So his practice principally relates to corporate and commercial work, and James is also known by a lot of my students using the internet to build his practice via his video project called Copy in a Case Note. And there James surmises a recent piece of collaborative uh, litigation over a cup of coffee in a way that's rigorous and approachable. So we really look forward to hearing from James today. James is going to speak for about um, 45 to an hour, and then we'll have some time for Q&A from my students, which will be lovely. So over to you, James. Thank you, Madeline. Um, such a generous intro, very kind. Thank you to, all, to you all for your time. Um, I'll just say that I'm planning to record today and we're sort of troubleshooting as we go. So the best of intentions to start. Um, can I just focus on a couple of points of admin before we kick off? Um, we don't have to wait to the end for questions. If anything springs to mind or if anyone's got any questions, comments, uh, challenges, points of order or anything like that, please feel, feel free to yell them out. Uh, that is very much fine. Um, so, what I've titled today's discussion is when the rubber hits the road. Uh, and the basis of that is trying to uh, borrow that metaphor um, to talk about where you are at in your progress, potentially towards the profession, being in practice, or at least getting an understanding of the practical application of a lot of these topics you've been studying this semester. So the rubber hitting the road, you've done the heavy lifting of the theory. Hopefully today's a little more relaxed and hopefully a little more practical. I'm gonna use some terms you've heard a lot of times. Probably gonna use a couple of terms you might not have heard. And the point today is not gonna to be to try to overwhelm everyone with new concepts. concepts. It's gonna to try to put some meat on the theoretical bones that you've been assembling for yourselves through the semester. 
So as I say, yell out. Um, we're not going to do hands up or anything like that. Please just, please just yell. My hearing is fairly bad, so feel free to yell loudly. Um, one of the challenges that recent grads can encounter when they come into the profession is the rhetorical question of how does my excellent mark in advanced real property law translate when I've got a grumpy client and this conveyance seems to be falling over? And there seems to be this mismatch, and there is indeed a mismatch, of this chasm between working very hard at university and, and, and you know, achieving or excelling, or, or however we want to describe it, in the academic context, and then being dragged into the work that I'm sure some of you will be thinking about and some of you will have thought about and, and rejected. Um, <laughs> um, but how do these theoretical concepts apply when we get into practice is essentially what today's discussion is going to attempt to bridge. So I'm not so much going to bridge that gap as to try to describe it and give it a bit of shape so that when you talk about a Barnes and Addy remedy in whatever equity is called now, I imagine it's called trusts and you know, recovery or trusts and structures or something like that. You will have heard the term uh, a quiz close trust, a constructive trust. Uh, you'll have heard about Barnes and Addy, you'll have heard about all these sorts of trusts. And they might sound, they might even be concepts you've mastered in the context of writing an essay or in the context of uh, drafting or responding to an exam question. But I suppose my hope today is that we're going to bump into some of these concepts that you've got command of theoretically, and we're going to see how those concepts exist in the marketplace. And when I say the marketplace as well, I should say, speaking very broadly, um, not every company is listed on the ASX. Uh, not every trust holds hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate. Uh, not every partnership is about mining for minerals in northwest and western Australia. We're going to look at some real day-to-day, week-to-week, uh, you know, uh, commercial-level, marketplace-level examples today. And it's going to be fun. No, it's not going to be fun, fun. But uh, hopefully it's going to be informative, will be the point. So what subject areas are we going to cover? We're going to try to cover commercial work. And when I say commercial, I sort of want to exclude the definition of corporate. We're not going to get too much into corporate oppression or governance or directors and shareholders too much. We're going to bump up against these concepts. But broadly speaking, we're going to talk about trusts. We're going to talk about partnerships. I'll try to keep the tax talk to a minimum because it's not a subject area I have command of. But you know, tax is always just around the corner. All roads lead to tax uh, in this sort of area. So it's a little bit challenging to completely remove tax from our discussion. But basically, we're talking commercial and non-corporate chit-chat today, which means partnerships, trusts, a bit of contract law thrown in as well. We're going to have this discussion by leaning on recent examples. So we're going to approach this practical position by working through what courts actually do and have actually done in the last 18 months. So that to the extent I'm trying to equip you with an understanding of how these things run, we're just going to work through how these things have indeed run in the last 18 months in the context of clients who walk through the doors of firms like mine, firms like those some of you might be working in at the moment, and firms like others that you might bump into in the marketplace. Uh, there are going to be a couple of abbreviations. There is a paper that's on the iLearn resource, the iLearn resource, resource 
that are going to have a few abbreviations in there, I ask you to forgive those. But essentially, we're going to be working from some notes today that I'm hoping are going to branch, up, branch out into a broader discussion. Another way of describing what today's talk is going to be is to say we're going to work through some case notes. And case notes is just a short form description of abbreviations of litigated decisions. We're going to work through the facts, we're going to work through the law, we're going to work through the outcomes. And practitioners tend to rely on case notes prepared in their area to save them the couple of hours working through a judgment to hopefully some of their colleagues or perhaps some of their juniors or some of their competitors um, will have extracted the really key elements from each judgment and the issues that as practitioners you ought to bear in mind arising from a certain judgment. And I'm certain that some of you will have had to engage in this exercise at some stage through your studies. And I'm certain that some of you will have taken the benefit from case notes provided by others. So I don't really need to hit you with a sales pitch for case notes. But the reason I want to linger on it for a moment is to say that there are a useful mechanism for setting out the facts that lawyers bump into literally in their practice and how those facts meet the law that you've already bumped into in your theoretical study today. So that's a sales pitch for this talk. Congrats on coming along. If you accept the sales pitch, then you've made a good decision. I also say that the value of today's discussion, which is huge, as I say, is not merely for practitioners or those looking to go into practice. Uh, it is for those of us who identify as students and practitioners, and it is for those who wish to understand how commercial law works in practice. And so it's not a list of strategies. It's not a list of practical tips. It's not a list of suggestions of what you do when that irate client uh, phones you up or anything like that. It is merely working through together some examples of what has happened. So if there are no questions or comments at this stage, I might jump into our first case study for today. Uh, and just before I do that, the one other value of case studies is that I often find that facts can be a shortcut in your you know, neural pathways or your thinking processes to give rise to a legal maxim. So if we talk about snails in bottles, or if we talk about carbolic smoke balls, if we have a moment to be like, oh, that's right, it is not merely a joke made at your expense, you know, at the law ball or whatever. It is a genuine shortcut for you and your thinking to be like, yeah, hang on, that's right, the bottom of the ginger beer, neighbour principle, yeah, okay, tort law, yeah, okay, insurance, yeah, okay, bang, 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 bang. And so what I'm hoping is that in sketching out some of the facts today and hopefully giving you a bit of a shortcut in extracting one key element of the facts. For example, this first one about a granite mine, and you're gonna learn what gabbro is and what granite is. Hopefully it's gonna give you a tiny little basis to go, yeah, all right, there was that case where um, there was this quarry master who mined gabbro, mined granite, and there was this first grade and second grade, and it'll give you a little bit of a shortcut for understanding these maxims, rather than me saying settled accounts is a defense in a partnership dispute. Who cares about that? Or how do you conjure that up in the absence of an example? And I say it's more difficult. And so hopefully I'll provide you with some examples today that'll assist with that process. So we travel to a granite quarry. And granite and gabbro are, I understand from this judgment, the same things. And what happens is uh, this is a partnership dispute about a partnership that quarried the granite or quarried the gabbro 
from the years 1996 to 2003. And the partnership from 1996 to 2003 involved the plaintiffs, so the people bringing the claim in these proceedings, and the defendant. And from 2003 and on, the plaintiff remained operating the quarry, but the defendant had gone. By way of more context, before 1996, there were other business structures operating on the quarry. So we have a party that owns the quarry, giving leases to various partnerships, trusts, companies, business structures that will lease the quarry. And we have a dispute about what happened in the years 96 to 2003 for a specific partnership operating the quarry in that stage. Now let me just tell you a little bit more about how the quarry operated. What happens is, I understand from this judgment, is that when we're operating a Gabbro quarry, we're going in, blowing it up, taking stuff out of the ground, and essentially we are taking out two grades of granite. We're taking out first grade, which is the sort of thing that uh, you and I might have seen on kitchen bench tops that has very few veins, very few impurities, and that is pure enough, first grade enough, to be able to be transported and sort of carved and shined up into one single piece. And we have what's called second grade, or what's referred to or dealt with in the industry as second grade. And that is a type of gabbro that really responds wildly to market fluctuations. There'll be times when um, you can get an okay price for your second grade gabbro. There'll be times when it's not worth the earth that you've exploded to go and find it. Um, but in essence, what we're doing is we are mining by exploding or digging or whatever, taking our first grade gabbro and putting it on trucks or whatever we're doing, going and selling it. And we're making a stockpile of our second grade gabbro. We're doing this in the years before 96, up to 96. We're doing this in the years 96 to 2003. And we're doing this in the years 2003 onwards. We have a stockpile that's been being built ever since the commencement of the use of the site as a quarry. So what is the dispute about 96 to 2003? Well, our plaintiffs, and you can tell by the word plaintiff that it is the plaintiffs who've commenced legal proceedings. And essentially what they are saying is the defendant, and you can tell that the defendant is defending the legal proceedings, they are having a claim made against them, so they are the defendant. The plaintiffs allege that the defendants caused all these improper payments to be made from the partnership in the years 96 to 2003. And one of the areas of relief that the plaintiffs are seeking is for the passing of partnership accounts. And in practice, what the passing of partnership accounts is, is very literally the court receiving evidence, working through it, and making a finding about what the financial position of the partnership is or ought to be, and then making orders about the payment of money that should adjust the position between the relevant parties, the passing of accounts. Now, what the defendant did in the attempt to defend against the claim brought against them is to raise the defence of what's called settled accounts is to say, well, hang on, this was 96 to 2003, this thing's over, it's finished. We have settled the accounts. And that's a complete defence if the defendant is able to say, you've claimed for the passing of accounts, <laughs> they've been completed, it's over. And that is a complete defence. And the two fundamental issues that arose in relation to this accounting dispute were, firstly, is the right to mine at the quarry 
an asset of the partnership because it was not in the partnership accounts. So if we think about the nature of the process going on at the quarry, that process is having the permission to go in, blow up the ground, take the first grade, stack up the second grade. The right to do that is a valuable right. And so what our plaintiffs say is it is a right that was owned or held relevantly by the partnership 96 to 2003, and it ought to be accounted for in the accounts taken of the partnership, and it has not been. Well, um, the court was unimpressed with that argument, and the really short point is the court found that the right to mine at the quarry was a right that was granted by the owner of the land to the relevant partnership or business structure operating the quarry at the time. And that might sound pretty trite and straightforward to all of us, and with the greatest of respect, it should, and you are right to say, oh yeah, I get it. If we just add a bit more complexity where there were previous partnerships with the same parties and one extra, then a later partnership with the same parties and one removed, and then a bit of a crossover, and it's inter-family stuff as well. So uh, just before we feel all superior and start to chuckle with the benefit of hindsight, I'll just make it clear that that is a useful thing to understand and take from this judgment, that even little nuggets like that that might seem pretty trite to us, looking back with hindsight, um, do actually need to be uncovered, much like layers of Gabbro, uh, as we work back through the judgment, and as you, or indeed people you instruct or work with, put the evidence before judges to come and understand it. So, the right to mine was not a partnership asset, and so there was no need for, there was no need for the court to do what the plaintiffs wanted, to think about the passing of accounts, including this right. Secondly, and this potentially is the little fact that's going to interest you, remember we've got our big stack of second grade Gabbro that was there before us and will be there after us. And what, in essence, the plaintiffs want is they want to account for the 96 to 2003 Gabbro to be in the accounts. Now, if we just try to imagine what this stockpile looks like, it is decades of historical crap and then road base and then crap and then road base and then crap and then road base, which is all underground now. And so the court dealt with some expert evidence of how, how on earth are we going to estimate what is in there? How on earth are we going to estimate how much of it is first grade? How on earth are we going to value it? How on earth are we going to say this segment here is attributable to the 96 to 2003 partnership <laughs> the amount above is 2003 and later, and the amount below is pre-1996. And what the court found was that it would indeed be an impossibility. And so, the seeking of accounts that the plaintiffs were after for this 96 to 2003 was rejected. The plaintiffs failed in their claim. They failed for two large reasons. One of them, remember that right to mine, was not an asset of the partnership, and so didn't need to be dealt with. And remember that second one, that it was an impossibility to figure out what amount of this second grade stockpile formed part of the partnership assets. The proceedings were dismissed. Good fun. We're going to jump to a trust example now. And as I said before, all roads lead to tax. And I think this, this is actually the opposite. I think this road comes from tax, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there in the end. So we're in the 1970s uh, and we are in a position where one parent wants to do some tax planning and that parent owns a farm 
And at that stage, death duties were at what the court describes as confiscatory levels. Now, let me just work through what that means. So if I am a mother, to take an example, and I'm operating a farm, and I have a number of children, and essentially my sole asset is the farm, $50 in my back pocket. On my death, I have an asset pool that is largely the farm, death duties get taken out, and more or less, my executor has to realise the farm in order to pay the death duties, and so the farm is out of my family. And if I'm mum, that's not what I'm planning to do, and so I'm disappointed with how things have gone. And so what mum might do in the 1970s is what the relevant parent did in this case, is to enter into an arrangement where the land be transferred out of the relevant parent's hands, out of mum's hands, if we, take, if we take that example, and into the hands of a trustee company, so that the trustee company is not going to die, and so the trustee company is not going to have to pay death duties, and so the trustee company is going to be able to remain owner of the farm, and so, for so long as mum, or the people mum chooses, um, can remain in control of the trustee company, the farm remains in control of the family. And the risk of death confiscating the farm is reduced considerably. The argument in this case was an argument taken very recently, as we said, in about the last two years or so. And what happened was uh, beneficiaries of mum's estate, so uh, I'm afraid it's a, fairly, it's a more patriarchal scenario than, than um, all of us might consider ideal, but uh, in essence, in our facts today, we've got dad dying in the mid-1970s, but not before he's purported to make this transfer. Mum is dad's beneficiary, and then we've got an argument of the beneficiaries of mum's estate because mum died in 2017. I hope that makes sense. Dad dies, all dad's stuff flows to mum. Mum dies, all mum's stuff flows to kids. And we've got the kids saying, the farm is in mum's estate and I take pursuant to mum's will. The argument raised is confronted by the alternate argument, which is, no, in the 1970s, dad was trying to avoid death duties. So dad transmitted, transferred, his ownership of the farm into the hands of dad PTY Limited, or whatever it's called. And so dad PTY Limited is the owner of the farm. And so mum is not the owner of the farm, and so the farm does not pass into the hands of mum's beneficiaries pursuant to mum's will. Now, a couple of frustrating personal elements arise. Firstly, one of mum's kids was operating the farm and had a grand ambition to sort of buy out the siblings and, and, and hopefully operate the farm into the future. Um, another of the frustrations was that the cost of this litigation, which had gone through various incarnations, were such that the farm had to be sold in any case in order to fund the litigation, so legal costs just got out of proportion and you ended up with the perverse outcome, the disappointing outcome, that the thing we're arguing about, <laughs> in essence, causes its own, own destruction. Now, the really short point is that what Dad had intended to do and had actually sought the advice of a local solicitor who later became a barrister, who later took silk, so a fairly switched-on uh, sort, of, uh, sort of a local lawyer at the time, was that Dad's attempted transfer, in short, was effective and had been treated as effective by everyone, including Dad's executors in the 1970s, 
including mum in relation to long written letters, including the kids at almost all times up to 2020. And so this query about did dad effectively transfer this farm into the hands of the trustee company was quite recent and conflicted with not only the impact of the transaction at the time, but also with the relevant party's understanding of the transaction in the decades that followed the transaction. And so was the farm mums or was it the trustees? It was the trustees. Sorry about that, good fun. Anything arising from this that anyone wants, wants to get into now? I'm very, I'm very happy for questions to be held, but I'm also happy to go toe to toe. I'll keep marching on. We're going to go to a case that I've described as case three today. It's a good name, third one we'll, we'll discuss. Um, and the reason I say it's relevant today is that it delves into um, one section of the Trustee Act that is not particularly well understood with the greatest of respect among the profession. And it's one of a set of sections that I say can assist you in practice or in part to feel superior because you know stuff other, people's don't, other people don't know, but more importantly, in order for you to give a more complete advice to your clients or in order to understand what a judge might be thinking about when you are appearing before them uh, and what might have come before you um, with some well-equipped professionals and how they might be thinking. So it's a section of the Trustee Act Section 63, it's a New South Wales piece of legislation. And what it allows is it allows a trustee to come before the court to seek judicial advice. And there's something similar that you might have dealt with in your corpse course that allows insolvency practitioners like litigators or bankruptcy trustees to do, or administrators, or administrators, I think administrators, but I don't recall specifically, to come to the court and to seek judicial advice. And that application is in the form of a yes, no question. Hey court, would it be okay if I did A? And the question gets an answer from the court if the court considers it's appropriate um, to give the judicial advice. And the trustee is then able to take comfort from that advice and to go ahead with their management or administration of the trust pursuant to the advice as a protection to an allegation of breach of trust. Who cares? Let's just give a small example before we dive into this. You can imagine a trustee of a small company that might be a holding company of a business that might have a couple of partners. The trustee might want to distribute funds equally between one, two, three, four beneficiaries and beneficiary one might have a high income uh, and be concerned about the tax consequences and beneficiary two might have a low income and hope for a larger distribution. And they might be siblings who don't get along or they might be business partners who've fallen out, or they might be people who just take a different view of life. And in that scenario, you'll often find a trustee wanting to come before the court uh, to seek the advice of the court that is then protective of them and allows them to protect, to protect their position. If I can just meander for a 90 second personal anecdote, one of the most recent applications for judicial advice I've ever been involved, I, I've, I've been involved with was for section 66G trustees, section 66G you won't have dealt with in this course, but you might have dealt with in real property. In essence, when co-owners of property don't get along, they can go to court and get an order from an independent person to be appointed to sell the property and divide up the proceeds. My clients were appointed to do that. The properties were a Darling Point penthouse with like 360 views 
and a collection of jewellery. And the beneficiaries were three children who lived around the world and sort of half cared, but all they really cared about was making their other siblings' lives more difficult. And so our trustees were just professional asset real estate people, and they didn't particularly care. They didn't have a favourite or least favourite beneficiary. They just wanted to make sure that one of the disappointed children wasn't going to sue them for breaching the trust, and they wanted to insulate themselves from criticism in relation to this. And so what they did, we did, we approached the court for judicial advice, and essentially the yes-no question we asked was a very finely calibrated proposal of how to conduct an auction of the uh, property that was quite a sort of weird, bespoke kind of property that there wasn't really a market for that was well established. And then jewellery, some of you may or may not know this, but the value of jewellery, people just make up. You can go, oh, it's worth a gajillion dollars. And then you have another valuer saying, oh, it's junk, it's not worth anything. And so our people were not jewellers. And so they needed to engage in a sort of cascading set of conditions in order to run a jewellery auction. How do you set the reserve if you don't, you, you know, of a piece of jewellery if you don't understand the value? And so we came before the court to seek judicial advice. How are we going to sell these apartments? How are we going to sell the jewellery? You know, we asked for it, we got it, we left, we got costs, it was good fun. And so judicial advice is something a trustee can seek and it's something that some of you might want in your armoury as you think about going into practice or it's something some of you might just be interested to have in your general knowledge back pocket to understand how commercial law can work, which I suppose is, comes back to the theme of today's talk of stitching that theory into a bit of practice. So case three is about a different kind of trust than the ones I've previously acted for. This is a superannuation trust with about 80,000 members and about $10.5 billion assets under management. Now, um, what happens is that trustee manages the super fund themselves. They don't outsource it to anyone else. They are on the tools making the management and investment decisions, putting the, you know, whatever you do with $10.5 billion, buying some shares, selling them, putting them in bank accounts, putting them in term deposits, using sharesies or whatever it is. After the Hain Royal Commission, trustees who face a statutory liability, and let me just dive into this for a moment. So the Hain Royal Commission, a lot of you will be familiar with. Um, there was criticism of a number of financial institutions and indeed Madeline might have covered it earlier this semester, okay. Um, and as a result of that, trustees who would previously rely on an indemnity from trust funds, which is to say, um, if they did something wrong, the trust deed would allow them to you know, not quite pay out the money themselves and be repaid from the trust, but essentially pay from the trust to cover the penalty. And that's because <coughs> it's hard and it's risky to be a trustee and it's increasingly risky with the arrival of various changes to the law following the Hain Royal Commission. And so there's going to be a clampdown on trustees. Now, why does that matter in this case? It matters because our relevant trustee has $6 in their own name and no other assets. So they're managing 10.5 billion. The way they're structured is they have $6. And traditionally that's been fine because the trust deed has allowed for any penalties or anything, they might get a $20,000 penalty, right? And so you just pay that out of trust. But in the new landscape, if they get a $550 parking fine, they are unable to pay it and are therefore insolvent that's going to place 10.5 billion in funds with 80,000 members into administration. You're probably going to need to appoint and find a new trustee and you're going to need to go through a very complex, very expensive scenario in order to 
deal with the perhaps small breach. You, you know, I was late reporting something or you know, some minor breach causes the whole thing to fall apart. So what the trustee was seeking judicial advice about was, can I please amend the trust deed in accordance with its terms to allow me to be paid fees? <laughs> so I can have a little bit of money in the bank. Uh, when I say a little bit, I mean sort of in the hundreds of thousands or, or small, small millions or something like that, to ensure that if there is a statutory penalty that applies in our new post-Hain scenario, that the trustee is able to pay that from their back pocket rather than having the entire trust set up crumble to dust. And the short point is that for the practical reasons that the applicant put this application, put this question, put this request for advice before the court, the court said yes and the advice was granted and so the trustee was free to proceed in reliance on that advice and with the protection of that advice. Case four, uh, we've heard about the rule in Foss and Harbottle before, and when I say that, I expect none of you to remember really what it is, but to sort of feel bad or just have a little sink in your stomach to go, mm. I have to Google it mostly because you sort of, I get it the wrong way around when I think about it. The rule in Foss and Harbottle is that the claim of, and we're not gonna talk much about company law today, remember, but I'll just use this to refresh your memory that if a company has a claim, then it is for the company to bring that claim and not the directors and not the shareholders. James PTY Limited is wronged. It is James PTY Limited's claim. It is not James's claim as shareholder. It is not James's claim as director. It is not anyone else's claim aside from the company's claim. And so you then have the historical problem of, well, what if James PTY Limited, for whatever reason, does not elect to pursue this claim that it has in its hands. How do I, as a frustrated shareholder or a frustrated director, get James PTY Limited to pursue this claim? The answer is one of the exceptions to the rule in Foss and Harbottle, right? Where you bring a derivative action. When a shareholder or a director can stand in the shoes of the company and pursue whomever it is that shareholder or director says owes money to the company. This has been true in company law for some time. And it was codified in the Corporations Act in section 236. And section 236 subsection two says that the operation of this act and this section extinguishes the common law right to a derivative action. And so common law right to a derivative action is gone. The statutory right under the Corporations Act is now in place. There are glosses on that including for a company in liquidation, arguably in receivership. We don't have to get to it now because it's not a company law chat. But the reason I raise that background now is to say, up until, with the greatest of respect, earlier this year, it was not clear as to whether that same remedy was available to disappointed beneficiaries of a trust. So if any of us are disappointed beneficiaries of the James Trust, and for whatever reason, the James Trust, including by the operation of James Holdings, PTY Limited, who might be trustee of the trust. But if we're disappointed that a trust isn't off pursuing a claim, <coughs> then as beneficiaries, we could apply to have the trustee removed. We could apply for the passing of accounts. We could apply to do a number of things, a large number of things in relation to the trustee. 
uh, and that's pursuant to the inherent jurisdiction of the court to make orders about the administration of trusts. But it was not clear that we had the right, as beneficiaries, to bring a derivative action in respect of the trust. And so this application um, is about, well, can you? The short answer is yes. Um, and that's something new that popped into the law recently. But can you do it? The answer yes is sort of the theory point. And in order to ground that position, I thought I might give you the background facts and in so doing highlight the purpose of today's discussion more generally. So here we have um, a trust that has substantial assets um, in excess of about 55 million at the time of the judgment and probably exceeded around 120, 130 million at sort of the height of its asset holdings. And it's a similar scenario to the one we've described earlier. We have one parent um, setting up a trust for the benefit of four children and their spouse. And we have the trust controlled by a trustee company run by two children who the plaintiffs would have it are our bad guys. And I'll speak loosely and think about them as our bad guys for the moment. Now, uh, what the plaintiffs complain about is our bad guys causing from the year 2009 to 2020 there to be millions of dollars of income paid to entities relating to the bad guys and not to any of the kids or to um, the surviving spouse. They complain about the very valuable crane business, which was an asset of the trust, just being transferred to an entity related to a company run by one of the bad guys. They complain about uh, $58 million paid into the trust as a result of a compulsory acquisition of some real estate that was owned by the trust, being transferred off 44% to one bad guy, 44% to another bad guy, and the rest rats and mice. This, well, I guess rats and mice of 58 million is, is, uh, is still worth arguing about, but the rest of it distributed in small proportion to some other relevant parties. There are other criticisms made, as you might imagine, but in essence, what our plaintiff does is our plaintiff says, I want to attack in essence, this sort of conduct. And there are seven or eight examples. And of course, as we all know, or oh, I may not have explained it slowly and clearly enough, but some of these claims are claims that a disappointed beneficiary might bring, right? I'm disappointed I've not been paid money. But some of them are claims that only the trust could bring. So if I'm a beneficiary, I can't say, oh, I'm sad you transferred the crane business out of my hands or out of the trust hands. Well, if we think about the trust analogy to the rule in Foss and Harbottle, that's a claim of the trusts. And we think, well, are our trustee brothers going to cause the trustee to sue themselves in relation to the transfer of this crane business? And the answer to that, with the greatest of respect, is pretty trite, as, as we saw in this case. No, they're not going to do that. And so what we have is we have the ability for our plaintiffs to make an application to stand in the shoes of the trust, as it were, to go and make criticisms about the crane business or to go and pursue the intriguing distribution of funds from the compulsory acquisition. And what I hope we can all agree that we take from that is that the sort of factual matrix can ground us in our understanding of, yeah, trust can have a derivative, a derivative action as well. Case five relates to the, well, like, 
I don't know if motorsports are sports, but you know the the motorsport of go karting, and we have the motorsport of go karting administered in Australia by a national body, Go Karting Australia or National Go Karting or whatever, and the actual races themselves are state and territory by state. Go Karting Victoria, Go Karting New South Wales, whatever it is. And so the way the scenario works is that Go Karting Victoria or whomever will go operate a race, and that race is accredited. National go-karting accredited race. And anytime there's a national go-karting accredited race run by go-karting Victoria or whomever it might be, then go-karting Victoria collects a clip from each of the drivers, pays that clip through to go-karting Australia. And so go-karting Australia is building its coffers. It's a nice sort, of, nice sort of business to be in. And the nature of the way this is conducted over time is that go-karting Australia operates a trust and the trust is purportedly for the development of tracks. And so Go-Karting Australia says, great, I'm gonna get all this money in, I'm gonna manage it. Whenever anyone wants to build a new track in Tasmania, uh, you can come tell, tell me about the track, tell us about how much money you need, and I'll give you a loan that'll be interest-free so long as you stay within the parameters of these, these loan agreements, right? Again, a lot, a lot of boxes to tick. And I'm gonna fund the loan from the clip that we've taken for drivers. And so I'm gonna keep a record of all this money, and that's how we're gonna fund the loans. Now, Go-Kart New South Wales began to be critical of Go-Kart Australia and the way they were operating um, the fund. And Go-Kart New South Wales is eventually expelled as a member of Go-Karting Australia, and that is a failure to comply with one of the requirements of this loan. And so Go-Karting Australia says, great, not complying with the loan, I'll come take the loan, I'll come take the interest as well, and off we go. Now, Go-Karting New South Wales defends that claim and makes a counterclaim to say, no champ, we won't be repaying that loan because it's not a loan. It is a distribution you have made, a trust distribution you have made, and it's actually my money, and we'll take the rest as well. We'll get into precisely what that means. But first, I'll jump 45 degrees on how Go-Kart Australia's accounts looked year in, year out. So Go-Kart Australia was administered by this company, whatever it's called, Go-Kart Australia, and before that, by a trust, a different trust. Um, the management committee of the trust and the directors of Go-Karting Australia, PT Well Limited, whatever it is, are signing the accounts year in, year out. Yep, these are fair. Yep, these are true and correct. Yep, these are whatever. There are external auditors as well brought in to complete an audit each year. And so each year we have big strong ticks of like, yep, these are the accounts, these are the accounts, these are the accounts. And what the accounts show, interestingly, is that the corporate entity and indeed the trust that preceded it have assets of $1 each year. Go-Kart Australia, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1. And we have these loan accounts that are referenced to each relevant state body, Go-Kart Tasmania, Go-Kart South Australia, Go-Kart New South Wales, increasing year on year in accordance with the clip that is being taken from each driver in each accredited race. And what we find is that the argument is from Go-Kart Australia, this account keeping is me, us, keeping a record of what I will eventually have to pay on the vesting of this trust. These accounts I'm keeping, recording all the clip that's brought in from each state, 
is not recording distributions to be made pursuant to the trust, it's recording where this money is going to get paid at the conclusion of the trust. Now, the court's not especially impressed with that argument, and Go-Kart Australia fails at first instance and fails in the Court of Appeal, but let's just have a look at why. The short reason is the accounts, and so let's have a think about why. So, the accounts not only showed year in, year out for the trust to have an asset of $1. Right, so let's just think about that for a moment. Every year, the directors and the management committee of the trust that preceded them are saying, yep, that's right, we've only got an asset of $1. Put another way, every single asset we hold, other than this $1, is held on trust for someone else. And the assets of that trust being $1, means that Go-Kart Australia holding this money, holding the Go-Kart Tasmania money, the Go-Kart South Australia money, the Go-Kart New South Wales money in these specific funds must be held on some basis other than Go-Kart Australia holding it on behalf of this development trust. And directors each year go, yeah, that's right. <laughs> signing, 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 signing. There is in the profit and loss, each of these clip accounts, state referenced accounts where the clip taken from each driver is paid, are referenced in the profit and loss as distributions made. That's money out. And so each year the directors are going, yeah, that's money out. And so the idea that, no, no, I'm going to hold all this money until the end of the trust is inconsistent with the idea that these are distributions that have already been made. And what the court finds is, yes, indeed, the distributions have been made, and just screw your heads on super tight for the next 30 seconds. The distributions had been made from what we might call the track administration trust into Go-Kart Australia's own hands as bare trustee of these funds. And so because Go-Kart Australia was merely a bare trustee, the direction made by Go-Kart New South Wales was immediately binding, and so the money had to be paid straight out because it had already been distributed. That's one of our brain benders. You'll find notes on it in iLearn, but happy to dive into it because accounting stuff can get fun. Uh, I might just skip a couple, one, two, skip a few, and head to the shortest case, case eight, and then we'll jump to any questions, comments, theories that we might have. Um, this is another example of a judicial advice application. And so what you might remember is that pursuant to section 63 of the Trustee Act, what a trustee can do is essentially ask the court a yes, no question. Hey court, is it okay if we do X? And in this case, we have a lost trust deed. And what's interesting is that there is a wealth and quite a warm set of jurisprudence that is also really nice and short in relation to what do trustees do when there's a lost trust deed, because it happens every year or so, there's a nice decision in this area. Um, and I'm yet to get instructed in one, but if I was, I'd be ready to go in a heartbeat. It'd be good fun. Um, and in essence, what a trustee will do is they will come before the court to give judicial advice of a kind that, I withdraw that, the court will be asked by the trustee to give judicial advice. Would I be justified in administering the trust in a certain way? And in this case, we're looking at is would I be justified in going ahead and administering the trust 
pursuant to this unsigned copy of a trust deed that we have all been relying on for a couple of decades. Right? These cases will often come from someone changing banks or something like that and the new bank going, great, great, we'll open up some new accounts, just send us a copy of the trust deed and the trustee going, oh fuck, uh, you know, <laughs> does anyone have the trust deed? And so you sort of phone all your old accounting firms or your old law firms or whatever it might be and finding that you're gonna have to make one of these applications. And if you're the law firm who's meant to hold it, it's profoundly embarrassing as you can imagine. And if you're the trustee who's making the application, it's pretty embarrassing as well. But it, like, it happens in a real genuine sense. And so it's the final case I wanted to cover to sort of give you a taste of, you know, I think there's nothing more realistic and practical than losing an old bit of paper. Uh, it happens, right? And so in order for a court to give the judicial advice sought by the trustees in this context, the court must be satisfied that the deed actually existed, that it's not just made up, and that it existed in the terms that the trustee argues for. And it's those two criteria that the trustee needed to satisfy. Now, we had evidence from a number of parties, but the most compelling evidence was from the bank, in fact, saying, look, our processes are that we would not have opened various accounts or done various things if we had not seen an original of the trust deed. And so the trust deed must have existed. And the way we know that is that we just wouldn't have done this without it. And what's further intriguing is the court actually takes judicial notice of that. So next time there's a lost trust deed case, I, you know, I noted that as well, but no, very, very, very uh, interesting stuff. Um, and judicial notice is something you all might have dealt with in litigation or in evidence or something like that, where a court is able to take judicial notice, is able to rely on a fact as proved in the absence of evidence. So a court might take judicial notice of some common sense everyday stuff, uh, you know, how do hyperlinks work if you're navigating a website? Um, what are people likely to do in a common sense situation? Uh, have property prices increased just in a, as a general basis over time? Um, these, these sort of common sense-ish type scenarios that skirt around the edge of expert evidence. In this case, the judge said, look, I would take judicial advice of banks not opening accounts of this kind in the absence of a trust deed proved the deed existed, and then based on other evidence put forward, we proved that the trust had been administered pursuant to those terms, and so the trustee got the advice that it was after. That's the final case I plan to refer to. I hope this chat was helpful, and remembering what we were planning to do today, I was hoping to bridge that gap between some of those theoretical, fuzzier sort of concepts, and some of the rubber hitting the road as it were, how do these things work in practicality? And I hope it brought you some value and I'm uh, very happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you so much, James. I think there are sort of elements in, in all of these things that we've been touching on throughout the unit together, but also your other private law subjects and really bringing that to life in these recent case examples, looking at all these sorts of wonderful entities in go-karting Australia. We'll never look at them the same, I think, after that story. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. So I'd like to open up for questions now. I've got my mic, so I'll come over to you. But whilst you're thinking of your first one, I might just kick off with a sort of broad general one for you, James, which is, I mean, you touched on the Hainwell Commission, which we've discussed at length together this semester. 
But there are also some really other really interesting uh, changes in commercial law around insurance in particular, uh, in the wake of climate change, the Insurance Council of Australia are really coming in strong with that on, on resilience, but also something that you may have already dealt with a lot, which is e-transactions. Mm. And I thought it would be great if we could start off with a question about your experience and how you see the commercial law world becoming increasingly digitalized and how digital literacy is so important for the next generation of graduates and perhaps your, your thoughts on that. Mm. Uh, it's to strongly agree with the underlying premise. Um, I think it would be foolish of us to ignore the imminent inevitability of smart contracting. I just can't see a way around it. And as someone who sort of cut his teeth suing conveyances um, and that sort of thing, I can see those um, easier, with the greatest of respect, transactions which people want to be immediately enforceable becoming made is it in or on or both on the blockchain in the blockchain using 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 the blockchain so i think <laughs> huh, yes yes precisely used in the in the blockchain universe so i think that's more or less a certainty um, i think with the um what we might refer to as sort of the the, the smaller e-transactions that are less likely or less easy to be put in a category um, it's going to be challenging, and I think that's partly my own and, and, and our profession's occasional lack of imagination. I think there's going to be scope for um, a more sophisticated understanding of how we do business online than we currently have. And so rather than looking at it as something that I have a valuable comment to make now, I guess the comment is more that it is going to be for the generation of lawyers coming through, knock on, knock on wood, hopefully somewhere in this room, I presume they are, <laughs> to address the, how a pretty antiquated way of doing business, you know, digital signatures and, and this sort of stuff, even, even the very concept of having to digitise a signature is a slightly bizarre concept to have to go through. Um, these are sort of concepts that I can imagine are mere interim steps to a more progressed position with these e-transactions. So I think I'll just have to sit in ignorance before the, the, problem, the problem gets solved for us by hook or by crook. Well, it's a tricky question because we're still sort of largely unregulated mm. in a lot of respects. Mm. I'll open up for questions now from my lovely students if I have one. And so we're on the mic. Otherwise, I can take the liberty of more questions to exploit my role as chair. <laughs> All right. So whilst they're thinking of further questions. Mm. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks, Dr. Madeline. Um, uh, one of the changes I've witnessed that we were discussing earlier was um, what is your path to partnership as a solicitor? And in a firm anywhere above a very small firm, the answer was, I oh, just punch your time card, keep on punching that time card. And then when you're eight to 10 to 12 years out, someone will either say, best to polish up your CV and get out of here, or come through to the partnership table. And if you just punch that time card, just punch it enough times, then you'll end up somewhere. And I think we're now in a scenario, and, and Pete, you'll have a gloss to add to this that I'd be grateful for, um, where you're, um, to use sort of the now 10-year-old sort of parlance, you'll have half sort of 
financial KPIs. So you'll sort of want a practice that's over X point X million per year. And cultural KPIs, essentially a no dickheads sort of policy because no dickheads is now not merely um, nice because you want to be running a firm with people you like. Um, the exposure of having toxic personalities is now much, much broader. And so the bullying stories even that I could tell and probably Pete could tell about those years coming up are now less likely. <laughs> they haven't been eradicated, I'm certain. Um, and you know, anyone going into private practice, you'll cry in the bathroom the first sort of three, three, to, three to six months a few times. Um, it's always tough when you sort of feel it welling up. You're like, oh, fuck, I'm just going to go. Um, which does feel like yesterday, as, as we were saying before. Um, but um, if you're looking to succeed as a solicitor in private practice, there's an element of balancing that uh, cultural um, you know, cont contribution. Are you improving the careers of the people around you, above you, below you, um, who, have, who have chosen to commit their work time? And then the financial one. So um, part of the way I try to solve the answer of, do you bring enough punters through the door and charge them enough money, is I market online using the internet, which some people do um, and some people don't. And I've found it to be a pretty um, effective way of spreading awareness about the fact that I know a little bit about a couple of little areas of law. And so most of the work I get these days is referrals from lawyers who are conflicted out, who are able to say, oh yeah, this guy knows a little bit about this. He's worth chatting to. And so that's me trying to solve the money problem. And then you could ask any of Priya or <laughs> Prezzo or Candace whether the cultural questions are, are solved. But hopefully that kind of balancing act between the sort of the no dickheads element and then getting the, getting the money through the door element. I don't know, Pete, would you have a gloss to add on that? Great. I love that we're having a bit of a fireside chat here, having a bit of a commentary, having a bit of question. Well, my, my line on the point Peter raises is that if you experience any sort of success in a moderate sized firm, you're either a sociopath or you've got an anxiety disorder. And so, yeah, so you, even the good side is, uh, has some challenges to it. Yes. Mm. <laughs> That's a great question and an easy one. Um, re resilience and enthusiasm, I think are pretty much the two. Um, it, while it is a skills profession, and I'm please feel free to throw a pen at me. Um, poor, old, poor old Christy and the cat is. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, Prezzo, that would probably be quite interesting. Can I throw you under the bus? Yes. So I came across James, um, a dear friend of mine is a barrister. I'm a body's teacher on the weekends and now a lawyer and love the mix. And she had TikTok and you know James's account. And that's how we linked up. So as much of it is sort of, I think it circles back to how important it is to market now and how it wants to sort of a sort of put down, look down thing. It's actually such a powerful connecting tool that James utilizes like no one else I've ever known. So 
that's how we came to meet. And I think something that might have set me apart is I'm 10 years older than um, the average grad coming into this industry. So I've been through a few burns in my lifetime and I've learned a few things. And um, James, one of the things that I instantly connected with him on is his militant feminism. <laughs> and the approach to that, and I felt really empowered throughout my sort of first chapter as a lawyer being under his watch. So that's sort of how I came to be here. Thank you, Preza. Yeah, so, so a comment, I mean, and Preza, I, I don't want to throw you under the bus too long, but it's, it's, it's no secret uh, that I think you're pretty great. Um, so it's an ability to combine that sort of resilience point because a lot of the early years, plural, um, you find yourself giving feedback that, is, that must be fairly direct and that you can remember hearing sort of misdelivered mis in those early years. And so the ability to have a professional relationship where you, know, you might have to send an email on the run that has unfortunate phone formatting of like, no, error in thing one, no, misunderstood X, bye, thanks, in order to be able to send that off without being like, oh, hang on, how's this gonna be received? So, so Hopefully there's the balance of resilience in the person receiving it, but also the investment in the relationship you've made. So, so hopefully those two elements. And then enthusiasm, I think, is so underrated in someone new joining a team. So they'd be like, great, what are we doing today? Off to court, sounds awesome. Or like, great, drafting advice, let's go. Um, it's, it's such a difficult trait to, a, a difficult trait to discover, and it takes genuine energy from the enthusiastic person and it gives energy to the team of like, yeah, we are drafting an advice. Why don't we like, why don't we go, go get that advice going? And so I think that sort of, yeah, resilience, enthusiasm, um, crossover are probably the two that I look for the most. Um, everyone's smart. I mean, sort of, that's what universities are for. Um, and if people are resilient and enthusiastic enough to Learn, learn the things that we've got to try to impart. You know, it's our, it's our job to skill you up. And so it's your job to arrive ready to be skilled up. And so if there's some sort of crossover between those two, um, yeah. And then if I could just throw a, I mean, if we just sort of cut through the veneer, the whole reason I'm here to talk to university grads is to hold our firm out as someone who's keen on people early in their career as well. And so, it's almost the very, the very fact of someone approaching me about work or something like that is almost its own criterion to be like, okay, this is someone who's done a bit of diligence. This is someone who's bumped into me at a, at a chat I've had, or this is someone who's aware of who I am from the internet, whatever it might be. And then having come through that filter, even in and of itself, we'll often find someone who's like, okay, great. We're gonna, um, you know, like we're gonna have a chat about intersectional feminism and it's important uh, at a board meeting in the firm. Great, let's, let's go. And if that's not something you're interested in, uh, or do you want to kill your dad? Like, that's what dismantling the patriarchy is. Um, then that's someone who's unlikely to come within, within my sort of radar. And so, um, yeah, that's a long way of saying humility, resilience, enthusiasm, but with resilience, enthusiasm being... And send your CV through to hrchamberlins.com. Hi, James. Hello. I just wanted to echo what everyone else has said and say thank you so much for being here today. You're so welcome. Um, something I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit and something I think we've all taken away, whether it be today or as well 
as in your um, coffee and face mask series, is your way to kind of distill these like really long, complex like commercial cases and trusts and etc. Right, and bring it into plain English. And so, essentially, something that I wanted to ask was, as students, other than just like reading cases consistently, how can we build that skill in terms of taking all that those facts, the legalese, etc. And then actually being able to distill that down into advice for clients that then makes sense to them and their commercial and like the awareness and the market that they're in. Thank you for the very flattering question. That's very generous. Um, I think it is in part, and I should just check check my privilege. It's in part that I'm older than everyone here, and I've been doing this longer. Um, <laughs> Including uh, Pia. <laughs> Most, uh, you and I are of an age, Pete. Uh, uh, there's, there's an element of, of, of having done it for a while um, that I should just check. Um, but I think if, if we run a fact pattern of would it be more beneficial for you to read five cases or read three and make notes about two of those three, I think it's almost the second one of like trying to synthesize. So early in my career, I just read them to be like, yep, okay, go plaintiff, yep, defendant, yep, okay, cool. So I'm just going to go, yep, okay, cool, there's some pleadings, all right, good. Yep, okay, all right, so the plaintiff lost, great. All right, next. Um, I think, I'm not going to say journaling, but, but I think taking that moment, and it needn't necessarily be physical, although it assists me to kind of type up some notes, taking that, that moment of, as I say, rather than reading five and doing nothing, reading two and making notes or, or some, some, something like that to try to crystallise that thinking. Because if you're able to do that, what I think you become good at, and Peter, I wonder if you'd agree, is sort of pattern spotting, is that you'll have a client come in who'll say, oh, I've got a huge argument with my mum, and you go, uh, no, hang on, who's the trustee of your, like, who are we actually talking about the argument you've got? And you'll start to refine these, like, oh yeah, there was a judgment where there was the mum, but we weren't actually, she wasn't even a defendant, was she? She was the director of the trustee company. And so even though we were angry with Julianne, um, in fact, it's Julianne Co. PTY Limited who we're having the dispute with. And so getting that packed, packed recog pattern recognition muscles rolling, I don't know, would either of you have a gloss to add to that? Um, thanks, James, like everyone, for your time today and for giving the advice. Um, very interesting so far. Um, my question's kind of touching back on the concept of digitization, and that was kind of a key thing within our course this semester. And um, as I look at the law firms today, there's really this emphasis on technology, automation, and innovation. And sort of as Chamberlain's is more of a small and medium-sized firm, how do you see your firm um, evolving with those things of innovation and technology? And is that kind of a skill that you look for in uh, future grads or employees? Uh, if I can ask the last bit first, uh, yes. And it almost ties in with enthusiasm, because um, as any of Priya, Candice, or Prezo can tell you, we've had phases this year where our phones have not worked or emails been down because we're trying the latest thing. And so partly that requires you not to be like, fucking IT, are you serious? Like, I, like it sort of requires a bit of like, yeah, all right, like, let's give it a crack, you know, let's, let's give it a crack tomorrow. So, so that's sort of the last bit first of, of having a little bit of, curiosity and open-mindedness about being like, hey, did you know that, look, I can't even think, think, think of an example, but, but a new approach being taken to how we're gonna do law apart from sit down with two monitors, a keyboard and a little black tower and stay there for seven and a half billable hours a day. 
Um, and so how is our firm doing it? Uh, what I think we are very good at is iterating and trying. Um, we are not perfect in any bit of our IT. And I'm sure over a glass of wine, like we could all sit around and pick our least favorite bit and you know, complain and pick apart and if only this, if only that, at my old firm, blah, you know, these sorts of things. But I think Chamberlain's great strength on the IT and tech element is trying to find the 1% each time, trying to be like, okay, let's try that one more time. Let's uh, update that. Yep, let's tweak, 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 tweak. And once you start to compound each of those tweaks, we find as a firm that all of a sudden, once we've solved problem A and then fixed like problem B, and then, oh yeah, problem C, we've got a consultant coming in. And once these things start, start getting solved, we sort of emerge with a reasonably strong IT offering. And so I don't hold us out as a leader, I don't hold us out as perfect yet, but I hold us up as being pretty engaged with progressing our offering as best we can. And I think it's that embracing of imperfection and trying to embrace progress at the same time is how we try to view tech. Thanks for the question, great question. Thank you, James, and but sort of within your generally to commercial law and sort of going into the field now as fourth and fifth year students, in regards to you giving us a lot of advice so far, but talking back to the patterns and trends that you see emerging, mm. what do you sort of think the future and going into the field now as, as young lawyers, we're going to sort of observe in the commercial space. Mm. Uh, I'll probably comment from two perspectives. One is like career formation, and then one is the actual work being done. Um, the actual work being done, I think one of the challenges that um, grads coming into the profession now will face is a failure, and I say this because it's a failure of mine, is a sort of failure of mentoring. The easiest way to learn this job is to stand behind the shoulder of someone who's doing it for three months. And they say, do it like I do it, and I'll answer any questions you have along the way. And then after that three months, you tend to have picked up a couple of things. Well, um, if you're under a partner who works in the office two days a week, and then works a different office a third day, then works from home two days, and then isn't available 9.30 to 11 any morning because they're doing school run, and then isn't available two to six, and then We'll send you emails asking for work at half past midnight so your phone buzzes and lights up with someone who you're trying to impress with your responsiveness. It's a challenging scenario and it's a different workflow to the pretty much 6.30 a.m., 7 a.m. to pretty much 9 p.m., 10 a.m. range of work now. Those, those boundaries are getting blurrier, the locations are getting blurrier and that's a real proper challenge. Um, and so, that's something to be borne in mind. The second sort of challenge for grads coming in that is one um, that we need to meet is, is how do you forge a career? And a lot of um, older practitioners um, tend to think about, um, overusing a word that's something along the lines of loyalty, of like, great, we're gonna invest in you and, and teach you and train you up, and then hopefully uh, we'll then squeeze some billable hours from you now that we've turned you into someone uh, who creates valuable billable hours. And the maths on that is changing a lot for employers where it's going to mean grads who stay for 18 months, 24 months and have a profitable 12 as part of those are actually gonna be a pretty good outcome. 
And so for employers, we're looking to be as attractive as we can to grads to sort of make our mentoring and sort of early, early career experiences as effective as we can. And for grads, the other side of that is, what is a trend that, that we've identified is even for an excellent, successful experience you have with a grad, they will a year and a half, two years in, completely naturally, because that's the market we find ourselves in, start going, okay, cool, I've learned some stuff there, let's have a think about what the next position is. And so the sort of challenging element is going to be um, how do I, as an early career lawyer, obtain that mentoring I need? But then the empowerment is going to be how I, as an early career, but slightly later career <laughs> lawyer, having, having sort of done that initial phase, um, how do I then put together the stepping stones or the jungle gym swings or, or whatever metaphor we're going to use um, to get to my final destination? And I think it's increasingly likely there'll be a lot more steps, um, a lot more ladder swings or or whatever I'm going to end up with. But yeah, the, I think the challenge lays with employers in both to try to make it as a welcoming and engaged sort of profession as we can. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, we might leave it there. Please join me again in giving a Such a wonderfully informative but filled with sage advice uh, from such a you know inspirational um, and leader in his field so we're very very lucky to be here today so thank you so much again James and I hope you see some of my wonderful students around the track yes. at some point if not perhaps knocking on your door yes, yes. Thank <laughs> so you. thank you very much thank you all thank you, thank you all we appreciate your time thank you thank you, thank you. Um, and if there's anything that's left unanswered or unsaid or undealt with, I'm on most spots. You should be able to find me 